This is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today we're tackling a topic by popular demand that B and I were mentioning on a couple episodes in the past in which we said, hey, let us know if y'all would appreciate an episode solely dedicated to intersectional feminism. And Twitter was kind enough to let us know that the answer was a resounding yes. So thank you to everybody on Instagram and on the Twitter sphere who makes their voice heard. We hear you. And as much as I think, I don't know about you, B, but I think we try to bring an intersectional feminist approach to basically every topic we tackle. I mean, I think I try to bring one to my life. Yeah. The way that I live life. Exactly. And that does not stop when we walk into the studio here. Um, but it's, so this is almost like a meta episode in terms of naming and claiming and making clear not just how we try to live true to that framework, but also the history of why that's so important. Um, anything you want to add as we set this conversation up? Yeah, I mean, I think that these are t- topics that we'll tackle further along in today's episode. But just to make it clear, I think that a lot of times people assume that when we talk about living intersectionality, living our values as intersectional people that we're talking about how to be nice on Twitter or <laughs> how to not, you know, be a jerk. And that is part of it. But these issues are are people's livelihoods. You know, um, I really have no choice to not live an intersectional life because I'm an intersectional person. Um, and I think living at those intersections can be thorny and difficult and mm-hmm. recognizing them can be thorny and difficult. And I just think it's very important. It's important that we challenge ourselves to get it right. It's important that we understand how to get better and all of that. Yeah. And I feel like it's one of those buzzwords in the political world and in the feminist space and just in, I think, social media in general. Definitely. You know, the term intersectional or intersectionality has been tossed around so much. And yet it's very hard to understand. Like a lot of... um woke, news-oriented people that I know are like, what is that? What is intersectional feminism? So should we just define our terms? Yeah, let's just start with like a good breakdown. Cool. So this is, so intersectionality is a term that was coined by American professor Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989, but the concept existed far, far longer than than 1989. Um, Crenshaw gave us a good word, intersectionality, to describe uh, the textbook definition here, which is the view that women experience oppression in varying configurations and in varying degrees of intensity. Cultural patterns of oppression are not only interrelated, but are bound together and influenced by the intersectional systems of society. Examples of this include race, gender, class, ability, and ethnicity. And that list goes on much longer. On and on and on and on. There's, I mean, there's, think about the intersections that we occupy in our lives and, you know, there's so many of them. So that list is, it's a big list. And you said, you sort of identified at the top, I'm an intersectional person. What are the intersections that you sort of identify as living at? Yeah. So I would say some of my, the intersections that are the most prominent in my life are being a black queer woman. Um, there's a really great book on feminism called All the Women Are White, All the Men Are Black. And that 
that title just really summed up how I lived a lot of my life, thinking that I have to either be one or the other. If we're talking about black folks, I'm in that bucket, but it's not black women. If we're talking about women, we're talking about white women, and I'm in that bucket, but kind of. And so not really not really being able to occupy my actual intersections has been mm. difficult in my life. It's like living on the periphery. Exactly. On both those categories. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I kind of put you on the spot there. That's okay. Um, and I feel like we haven't we haven't heard from you on on the identity around identifying as a queer woman. What does that mean for you? I mean, just if you want to yeah. share, I'm like curious. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not something I. Ta- I mean, I'm I'm not. It's not something I'm purposely hiding. It's just not something I talk about often. Um, I think it's complicated, and I think that this is something that we should talk about mm. on the show. But I think that when you are a woman who does not identify as heterosexual, it can be tough to know how much space to occupy because I have been in relationships with men and I know that that gives you a kind of privilege and I don't want to be the person that's like rah rah queer identity when there are people who don't have the level of privilege that I have as as being someone who has been in relationships with women men and non-binary folks cool does that make sense yeah yeah awesome damn we're gonna have to do a whole episode yeah we should dig in I love it um and I think sexual fluidity too i mean yeah. the fluidity around sexuality and gender identity right now is so wild and like in the i say that in the best possible yeah. way um like those walls are just crashing down in a cool way they are and it's it's weird um i know that people talk a lot about um things like bi erasure where yes. bisexual women feel as though they really can't lift their issues and i definitely have felt that um and it's it's complicated it's a complex issue um yeah, I don't have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's a perfect illustration of what it feels like to not identify or not not be represented. I think that's really why intersectionality is so important. It's making the intent, right? Making the effort to be radically inclusive. Right. And by radically, I mean consistently across the board, acknowledging that we have different privileges, that we all have different experiences, and that that difference doesn't threaten our unity. Right, exactly. Um, I I mean, this doesn't make me sound like a very good feminist, but I had to learn that. Um, I was having a conversation with my cousin over the weekend where we were talking about trans women, and there was a, there has been a, you know, a whole thing about this. And I realized within myself something kind of bad, which is that I, in my mind, I know what it looks like to have had a girlhood, right? A girlhood is what it feels like to get your first period. A girlhood is when you get catcalled for the first time. I understood what that meant. And I was very, if someone threatened what that meant to me, I felt that to be very threatening. And it took me a long time to realize trans women, their girlhood is just as valid as what I understood my own girlhood to be. So I really, it took me a while to get that, where I I realized, oh, the kind of girlhood that, you know, a woman who is not like myself, whether they're a trans Mm -hmm. woman, whether they're a poor woman, whether they're a a differently abled woman, just because our girlhoods were not the same doesn't make mine valid and theirs not valid. And I had to learn that. Like, I was a a, a, a bad feminist when I didn't acknowledge that. I disagree, because I think we all had to learn this. Who's born being a perfect intersectional feminist? Not me. Zero people. Like zero <laughs> percent. Maybe Kimberly of Crenshaw. <laughs> Maybe really. I, I I don't think so. Even I feel like we we should acknowledge that there is a spectrum of learning and bring a bring what is really called a growth mindset to this, which is 
everyone can get better at this. No one is born with or without the skill to be intersectional. And it is a learned habit, a learned sort of perspective. So we should have, I have compassion for you and, and we should all have compassion with ourselves because we're ever evolving. And the minute you think you're perfectly evolved, someone on Twitter will remind you you're not. Oh, the universe <laughs> has ways of knocking you down. Uh, I definitely have, I, I mean, polishing you, polishing you. Yes. <laughs> I got to a place where I thought I was little miss woke, right? Like people were, people in the progressive space were coming to me, like important people to ask me my opinions around diversity and inclusion and As blah, blah, blah. Should. And I was feeling really good about it. And then those are the moments where you say something or do something or forget something or, and then it's like the universe is reminding you, right. Hey, we're all ever evolving. Stay humble. Stay humble. <laughs> Don't think that you're, that's you know, good. yeah. And so that's been really helpful for me. I, I take pride in owning that I am, you know, imperfect and owning that I, that like everyone else, I, I have ways to grow and I appreciate when people call me out on it and, or call me in on it it's really. Hard. Cause it can be, it can, you know, it's hard. But. It's hard, but it's so important. It's so important. I totally agree. And I think all people want is to know that you're being real with them. I've been on the stage of a, you know, opening keynote for a conference on gender inclusivity and, and I have to own my white privilege, like pretty vocally. I think that's the best way to do it is check your privilege in a very public way and say, listen, I know I'm like this white woman up here talking about race and gender and intersection. And, you know, I'm asking you, the audience, to be participatory and, and hold me accountable. And that has invited some, you know, some very welcome critique in real time. As I'm delivering a keynote. Are people screaming from the stage? Like, no, hey, remember, <laughs> you <God>. forgot about. <laughs> I know. I like rolled out the red carpet for cat, for not cat calling, for, but for, uh, calling out. Well, I just remember being corrected or, or pushed by an audience member more than once, but one in particular on how racial battle fatigue impacts burnout, mm-hmm. which is something I talk about a lot. And I said to her, that was such a good point. I don't have a good answer for you right now. Thank you so much for making me think about this. I'm going to integrate this into all my keynotes moving forward. And I have. Yeah. So, you know, see the episode called Work Fails for more insights on how to stumble gracefully. I mean, wokefully. I don't know how else to describe it. But part of intersectionality is acknowledging that we're all on a, a, a progression here. And the importance to me, at least, I think is intent. The intent to be inclusive can go a very long way in a movement like feminism that is rooted historically in injustice. Definitely. And, and, and I, I think it's fair to say just flat out racism, um, but really not acknowledging or, or, <sighs> What is it called? Not not taking seriously the critiques of women who live at those intersections of every single day. Definitely. I remember when I was organizing trainings for the progressive community, again, thinking I was Little Miss Woke, doing everything right. I think there should be a sash that says, like, Little Miss Little Woke Miss 2017, Woke. <laughs> and that should be a pageant, and I would totally go to that pageant. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I was, uh, organizing a training and I thought, you know, we had this great inclusive space, blah, blah, blah. And we had a happy hour afterward. Someone pulled me aside and said, I can't get into this. It's at a bar. I am undocumented. I don't have ID. So I have to go home. And I thought, crap, I didn't even, that didn't occur to me. You know, I'm, I, it, it was just a complete blind spot. Um, and had this person not said something, it would, it would have continued to be a blind spot. So I'm so thankful that that person felt, you know, felt like they could come talk to me about yeah. it. Yeah. I think the same thing can be said for 
many events uh, held by the most woke of people that are not uh, accessible for those who are differently abled, too. I, I actually gave a little holler out on social media this morning before we came into the recording studio to ask folks uh, who are already fans of the show, what, do you, what does this word mean to you? What does intersectionality mean to you? And one woman wrote us saying, listen, you know, the thing that I find is so often forgotten is how differing abilities, right, being differently abled or able-bodied um, is so often ignored as the silent privilege that many of us currently have. Definitely. Um, and honestly, on the show, we did an episode around, we talk a lot about protest and things like that. And in an episode, we talked about how folks should be going to protests and, and all of that. Right. And I totally neglected to, and this is completely on me, and I, I work in this sphere, so I can't believe I forgot it, but I didn't even acknowledge that folks can't always physically go or they have they have a, a challenge or a, a you know a need where they can't it makes it difficult to go to these things right. and I, it didn't even occur right. to me to say you know you can still take action in other ways you can make calls from your house you can you know write an lte you can you letter know, to the editor yeah thank you thank you letter to the editor um you can you know there are plenty of things you can organize a phone book a or a digital phone bank, mm. all of those things. And so I didn't even so shout out to that listener for bringing that up because I didn't even think to mention that. And these are things that I basically traffic in professionally. So, Well, I think that's such a good example of including everyone in every single sentence of your speech throughout life is impossible. It's impossible. And it's not saying that you shouldn't try, <laughs> but it is, it, I mean, we will stumble and this will be challenging for, for our listeners and for us to, to live true to every single day of our lives. The important thing is how we react to being called out. And I have seen many of my fellow white folks who present white, um, really freak out on that part, really stumble at that part. And yeah. Miley is a perfect episode. Oh, Miley. Oh, Miley. That episode's a perfect example of, listen, it's it's one thing to screw up and, like, culturally appropriate time and time and time and time and time and time again, but it's a wholly different problem to gaslight people and make them feel crazy for critiquing you. Yeah, and I also think... um Having been on both sides, having called people in and been <laughs> called in, it's that is such a nice way of saying it. Can you explain what you mean? So, right I, now, so I, I so I don't like it when people say called out because that makes it seem like something that is inherently aggressive and bad, and you've done something wrong, and we're all going to get you in a circle and point at you and point mm. at this thing that you've done wrong. And I think it triggers this reaction on the person who has like done the thing that I think is not productive. And so I prefer to think of it as being called in, where. Like the person who, in the story I just told about the, you know, undocumented person, that was a, I, I thought of that as a loving gesture. I'm sure that was not difficult, easy for that person to do. And so I think of calling people in, you know, in a way that's, it's not calling them out. It's being like, hey, yeah. come back. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk through what just happened there wow. in a way that doesn't have to be heavy or, you know, you don't, it doesn't, not the end of the world, right? And like we all make mistakes. Mm. It doesn't have to be this earth shattering thing. It can be sort of, you can think of it. You can choose to think of it as a as a as a less negative thing. You just blew my mind. Yeah, I have a lot to learn from you on that. Call product. in culture, not Be call out culture. Because I do get very defensive, and I feel like this this experience, y'all, as we, as becoming someone behind a mic, has been really challenging for me in in that regard. Because I pour so much of myself mm -hmm. into this work that 
getting called in feels like it definitely triggers some defensiveness from me <laughs> um, in that my intentions are more often than not very good that when I get critiqued, it, it, it just like it triggers some shame or something or something. It's, it triggers some defensiveness in me that I've seen in other people that's quite ugly. And I'm sure it's not any prettier when I experience that emotion either that does make me want to defend myself but it's, and explain it, I myself. I think it's natural. And, yeah. And I think it took me a long time and being called out for some stuff I frankly should have known better um, on. But learning how to fight through that feeling, it takes learning. It's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And learning how to not make it about yourself and your, the way that you feel. Right. And you're in like saying things like, oh, I, well, I didn't mean it, you know, things like that. It took me a really long time to understand why that kind of isn't the best or the most productive way to respond. And it took me being called out on a lot of stuff. You are stuff I'm not like, proud of. You are like champion level empathic. <laughs> like I just, <laughs> you should get an empathy award. I feel like I, you are so good at taking other people's perspectives in this amazing way that it's quite it's I think it comes from I'm a lot admirable. of admirable. Yeah, it's 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 therapy, it's listening, <laughs> yeah. it's it's all of that. Well, I think you're awesome. Thanks, girl. So a great transition is sort of talking through this idea of what it feels like when someone wants to hold you accountable. And I think you, you mentioned seeing that in a lot of your sisters. And I I hate to say this, ladies, but <laughs> I think we have an issue with that in feminist spaces. And I think, you know, we saw that with the Women's March. You see it in a lot of feminist spaces where sometimes those spaces can be aggressively white. Yes. And I think a lot of women of color and a lot of women who live at intersections have not historically felt like the feminist movements have equally lifted us all oh, up. Oh, for sure. So let's let's talk about the history, and then let's bring it back to the, the march, because I know you've got some awesome experiences to share there, because uh, Bridget was a big part of the march, the women's march. We're not a about. big part. Bridget was the central <laughs> factor that made the march possible. That's that's my opinion, <laughs> y'all. Just kidding. That might be not as grounded in research, in fact, as the that's rest not, of our podcast. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell you all about it. I'm in, I'm in love with Bridget right now in case it's not glaringly obvious. I'm like slack jawed over here in awe. So I think we should maybe take a quick break. We'll be right back. Let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning. And there is no true beginning. I think we can point to you for the women's Movement, but anybody who's seen that movie, Suffragette, did you see that? I did not see that. What's her name? Um, Meryl Streep? Carrie something? I want to say Carrie Mulligan. Um, in Suffragette, which was a really interesting historical depiction of early industrial era, uh, depiction of the feminist uprising in the UK, in England, and the really brutal response from the state, from the government. Right. And in that movie, it became very obvious to me just how um, erased black women were from the suffragette movement. And the same could be true in the United States, right? When there were marches of suffragists, and we could do a whole episode on this, y'all, so I'm paraphrasing, okay? But in these feminist marches, black feminists... If there were any brave women who were not exactly felt like not exactly welcomed into those marches, we're told to march in the back. Yeah, I mean, there are stories like that around major historical feminist movements all throughout history. Yeah. You know, like like Lavender Menace, you know, gay women were not exactly welcomed into the feminist movement. Like this has been 
a challenge forever. And I think I'm happy that people are willing to have these conversations today. But I think it's no wonder that folks, you know, I had, I had a friend who, when white women, in order to, you know, show up at the Women's March, were dressed as, as suffragettes, I had friends who were saying things, who were, like, making fun of that. They thought it was really... Insensitive? It, it was making a show of how they were leaving folks out. Yeah. And yeah, I, and yeah, I, could, yeah. I didn't yeah. feel that way, but I could understand how folks would feel that way. And, I mean, this is... this These sort of divides in the feminist movement have been, like you said, throughout history, have come up time and time again around single issues. As NPR wrote following the Women's March uh, of 2017, uh, listen, it was that way in the 1850s when some feminists split over whether to champion abolition or women's rights. So it was a choice mm. between the abolition of slavery or women's rights. We couldn't tackle both at one time. And that's when Sojourner Truth gave her famous Ain't I a Woman speech at a women's rights conference in Ohio. And NPR goes on to elaborate that, listen, those divides still existed in the late 60s and early 70s when, quote, sisterhood is powerful, end quote, became a rallying cry. But with very few exceptions, Flo Kennedy, Shirley Chisholm, Eleanor Holmes Norton. Here Shout out to Eleanor Holmes Norton. Black and brown sisters were very much on the sidelines. So other than those few famous, notable, wonderful exceptions, you know, African-American women were not always welcome into that feminist movement and writers like Alice Walker and Bell Hooks chose instead to refer to themselves as womanist, not feminist. They refused to divorce their race from their gender. So they were intersectional before intersectionality was a term coined by Crenshaw in the 80s. Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, sh- shout out to all of those women because they've been so foundational in my understanding of my own feminism or slash womanism. Um, and yeah, you you can't ask people to divorce, you know, your gender from your race or your class from your gender or, or things like that. It doesn't work that way. We are complex packages. When I experience right. sexism, I'm experiencing it as a black woman, not just right. as a woman. And also, like what you were saying before about black women being at the sidelines, that is so true of so many movements that you would hope would be more progressive. You know, black women are the backbone, for instance, of the Democratic Party. Yes. And yet... We have struggled to be taken seriously in within the party, despite the fact that time and time again, no, like make no mistake, black women are at the backbone of the party. See Maxine Waters. Yeah. See the episode on Maxine Waters for more on that too. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. See Maxine Waters. See Jessica Bird's work trying to make the party more inclusive. See folks like Stacey Abrams. Black women are are doing the work. They're doing the organizing. They're running for office. They're doing all of this, and yet we still struggle to be heard. Well, on the priority list. Right. We struggle to be on the priority list. And I think that's true for so many women who live at intersections of race, class, gender identity, sexual orientation, ability, nationality, you name it, right? When it comes to politics, there's a priority list. And rarely throughout history have women who live at those intersections had their sort of complaints or desires or needs met at the top of that list. And frankly, I understand the misguided intent there because some people have seen this as, uh, you know, women of color wanting them to not rock the boat right? so that we could pass a wide ranging platform of policies that 
really have the unity of the lowest common denominator, in this case, gender. Right. I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've heard that. Honestly, probably the time, and I, this was like a peak white feminist moment for me, the time that I think illustrates that so perfectly was, I think it was the Academy Awards where Patricia Arquette had just won an <gasps> yes. Academy Award yes. for Boyhood, and she's brilliant in it. She deserved that award. She was great. Um, and she gave this great speech about... Um, Women and equal pay. And, and it the was. The time has come. Yes. And, and like, we were yeah. all, I, I remember watching that on TV and thinking, mm-hmm. yes, girl, say it, preach. preach. And then I was on this high of feeling so good about that moment. They cut to her backstage interview and oh, it was some nonsense. It fell apart. It fell apart. Her point basically was that wi- white women have fought for equal rights for blacks and now it's time for everyone else to get on board and fight for equal rights for them. <sighs> she talked about Obama. Like, we all got behind a black man. We all got behind marriage equality. Now it's time for all you people. It, I think she said something really offensive, yes, like, you people, it was so to bad. get behind women. And that's the thing. It's like, I understand the rationale. I actually understand the thought process that would lead someone to saying something like that. But the result is us versus them. The result is drawing a division, a line of division and saying my needs are more important than your needs and your unique experience somehow threatens our own. It threatens our our other shared experience. And that's that's what's so troubling to me about this is like some women's unique experiences that we don't share do not threaten the experiences of of sexism that we do share. Right. It's not an equal, it's not an and or thing. Right. And it, it totally erases people who live at intersections. Like saying that wi- women have fought for gay rights. Now it's time for gays to fight for women. What about gay women? Yeah. It totally it just doesn't er- acknowledge it, it, their existence. Yes. It totally, totally erases them. And I, I think um I was so sad. It's like when someone gets Ugh. it so close to being right and then it's not. It's a lesson in quitting while you're ahead. <laughs> yes. It's really what it is. Like, maybe don't keep talking behind the scenes. Once, uh, once you've like had such a speech that probably had like a like couple million tweets within the seconds that she went from the stage to backstage, she was like already making headlines for the next day's newspapers, and then she. She kind of tanked it. And then what happened on the internet immediately was, come on, guys, just don't pick on Patricia Arquette. Right. Come on, angry black women yeah. said a bunch of ignorant white women. Like, don't, don't make this into a race thing. Don't make this into a gay thing. Which is, that's, that's tale as old as time. It's how it always happens that when something like that happens, there is a rush to, I don't want to say excuse, but kind of wash away the intent and wash away the impact in a kind of way. And instead of saying, let's have a conversation about what just happened, there was a lot of voices that yeah. did not want to have that conversation. Yeah. Well, they it's uncomfortable. Wanted... It is uncomfortable. Yeah. I can understand. And part of me almost identifies with Patricia Arquette in that moment because I'm, I, I could see myself doing something very similar. <laughs> Same. <laughs> saying something, Same. getting it kind of right, and then just keep going and then really... Again, like, extreme empathy right now. <laughs> like, it, this is an amazing skill you have. I love I, it. You know, you know that my, my like, guiding expression is, what is it? Um, there but for the, there but for the grace of God go I. When you look at someone having a hard time. Yeah. Or, or like, doing it so wrong or really messing up. Yeah. That could be any one of us. And totally. I, 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 I really 
that is something that guides me in, in the way that I think about a lot of issues. Wow. Well, I, I love that. And I think this would be a good time for us all to ponder that further. And we are excited to dive into how this sort of historical lack of intersectionality is still on display today. And and y'all just know that we're going to leave you with some sort of strategies and, and core values to keep in mind as you move forward from this. We can avoid making these mistakes. We're not trying to harp on anybody here. We're not trying to tear anybody down. We're just trying to illustrate what it looks like to be an open intersectional feminist and what it looks like and how common it is to forget about that and and how destructive truly that can be. So I wanted to talk a little bit, B, about the Women's March here in D.C. The Women's March occurred a day after Donald Trump took office, and I, it was important to acknowledge the fact here that Donald Trump was put in the White House in large part because 53, I believe, is that right? Yeah, 53%. 53% of white women voted him in. And that runs contrary to women who live at the intersection of blackness and uh, womanhood. I believe black women voted oh, we, Hillary like 90-some odd women, percent. We, 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 as always, we knew what was up. <laughs> Like nobody voted for him less than black women. Black women, right? Pretty, pretty yeah. roundly were like, nah. And then I'm gonna <laughs> groundly were like, nah. I like that. And similarly, seventy percent of Hispanic women voted for Clinton. I, I guess I, I've got the number here in front of me now. Ninety-five percent of black women voted for Hillary Clinton, and women who identify as non-white. So I know that's a sort of catch-all category. Shout out to Asian women and native, native peoples and, and et cetera and onward. Um, 81% of those non-white women voted for Trump. So the only subset of the women population that voted overwhelmingly for Trump was white women. And so the women's march was on the heels of that harsh reality to which I love Tina Fey's commentary, who said, listen, a lot of this election was turned by white, college-educated women who now would like to forget about this election and go back to watching HGTV. And then she continued to say, you can't look away because it doesn't affect you right this minute. It's going to affect you eventually. And so there were some seriously harsh and, and um heated commentary leading up to this women's march. Definitely. I think for me, I was in a real weird place after the election. Um, I worked on the campaign for a while, and we could do a whole episode around election night for folks on the campaign, because it was... CNC did. Oh, did they? Right before they left. Their last episode was very sort of traumatic. I mean, it was very traumatized, you know. It was an intense time. Um, And so... I remember after the election going, I, I was in Brooklyn working from the headquarters and I came back to DC and I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for any of this. I wasn't ready for the march. I was seeing things on social media that kind of turned my stomach a little bit. I was seeing my white friends from, from different places in America talking about, my white female friends talking about, um, you know, coming to the march. And kind of talking about it as if it was a party, that they were excited to see their friends and excited to wear pink hats and excited for all of that. And there's, like, no shame. I don't want to rain on anyone's parade. But that felt so alienating to me. And I think part of it is living in D.C. I felt so personally 
wronged and impacted that I just wasn't ready to get up with my white sisters and march in the streets. I wasn't ready. And so I wrote a blog post about how I was feeling, which was just that, like, I wanted to remind white women that for folks at different intersections, if you're disabled, if you're black, if you're an immigrant, if you are, um, you know, if you live at certain intersections, if you're an indigenous woman, your life is about to get harder. And it's not funny and it's not cute and it's not an excuse for a party. It's real and it's scary and it's tough. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm remembering how I felt back then. I'm like on the verge of tears. I felt so alienated at my, with my white friends who seemed to think this was an excuse to like get a good picture on social media of them protesting. And I'm all for protests, but I just, I wasn't there yet. I, I felt so, I wasn't there. And um, a good friend of mine, Angela Peoples, shout out to Angela, um, I think formerly of the organization Get Equal, um, she kind of had a had a, a breakthrough moment. Um, if you saw this viral picture, it's her sucking a lollipop um, at the Women's March in front of a group of women, white women who are taking selfies in their pink hats. And she's holding a sign that says, don't forget, white women voted for Trump. And that image broke through in a way that I thought was really powerful. It went super, super megawatt viral. And it's now hanging in the um, National Smithsonian Museum of African-American History. I think I'm saying that wrong. but And culture. No, yeah. you got it. Yeah, just and culture. And I think it really illustrates how a lot of folks at intersections were feeling. I think it was, it, it totally encapsulated the very complex feelings that especially women of color had around the women's march and you were involved with the march correct yeah so i went on i don't i'm it's surprising to me that i was hired to do this after i wrote oh, this very salty blog post i i told her <laughs> we were talking about this before the show i was saying i have would not be surprised if you were brought on because you wrote that very compelling and totally justified and on point blog post which is, can be read where oh medium.com cool okay. um but yeah and so i was i worked on the team that was doing social media on the day of and to be honest, it ended up being a very, very fulfilling and positive experience for me. And I it, I was happy that I was part of the... I mean, I felt like being like I was being part of history in a kind of way, um, being on the ground at of the course. march. And it was so great seeing all the different kinds of folks who, who showed up. Mm-hmm. And it was... I haven't fully processed how powerful it was for me, yeah. I think, being part of it. Well, I think it also was an example of intersectionality in action. Because if you really look at the tough conversations that were had on that day and beyond, that's part of what getting woke is all about. It's part of having Angela Peoples hold that sign, go viral, and have conversations around, you know, whiteness and feminism and that historical exclusion of women of all different backgrounds. And I saw the march organizers go to great lengths to not just include women of color, but that march was led by women of color. It was organized by women of color, by Muslim women like Linda Sarsour, Mm -hmm. by women who come from vastly different economic backgrounds, class, um, gender identity and, um, sexual orientation and the 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 extent to which those who are differently abled were made welcome yeah. and the extent to which accommodations were provided to really make sure that even if you couldn't physically be there you could be there you know what i mean i i think that that, that was a good example of what it looks like to 
practice intersectionality. Yeah. And just sort of off that, um, Linda, who is, if you don't know Linda, she's an amazing organizer who I could talk about how powerful she is all day. But after the march, folks came for her and attacked her on the basis of her religion. And so it's, it's it was very interesting to me um, how folks who wanted to make the Women's March look bad used Linda's religion, sort of used her intersection to try to attack her. And I thought it was very interesting that of all of that, that happened. And I was proud to see so many folks stand stand with her and say, no, we're not going to let you attack our sister on the basis of her religion. That's right. not going to happen. Um, but it's interesting how it just goes to show how those intersections are so important and can sort of be used against us by people who would want to, you know, hurt our movement and hurt us. I think that's a great point. It plays on the fear of unity versus diversity. Exactly. And I think that's at the core foundation of intersectional feminism is to acknowledge that what makes us different does not threaten our unity. Exactly. Period. Right. Just like I was saying before earlier about trans women, understanding that a trans woman's girlhood even though it's different, might be different than my own, understanding that we are not in conflict and that their girlhood being valid does not challenge mine being valid, understanding that was huge for me. And I didn't see that for a long time. I think that's such a good example. I, um, I've been encouraged since the Women's March to see more white women who have large platforms, uh, make intersectionality a priority and come sort of out front and center about how important it is to check your privilege, whether it's white privilege or whatever kinds of privilege. And Glennon Doyle Melton, who is an author and speaker and, you know, has experienced the Oprah bump at Super Soul Sunday, whatever Oprah's doing to sort of choose the next big speakers <laughs> and pick them uh, in the personal development space. Glennon was on stage at one of Oprah's events and said very bluntly and directly and clearly and so eloquently, uh, you know, in the middle of her speech, she said, listen, I have to talk to white women in the audience for a second. And everyone was like, oh, boy, oh, God. <laughs> there was a, there was a uh, an audible, uncomfortable amount of laughter there for a second. And we were all crossing our fingers like, come on, Glennon. Don't be another white woman putting your foot in the mouth, like on stage saying something like Patricia Arquette style. And so what she said was, and I know I've mentioned this briefly in another episode, but I just think it's really pertinent right now, is, quote, I know that many of us are feeling alone and ignored and threatened and abused. And we're feeling like our bodies are being threatened and our children's education's at risk, that we can be grabbed at any minute and that our degradation and our objectification and our discrimination has become normalized and accepted in ways that are chilling. And that is painful. But what we need to remember is that this is just a touch of the pain that so many marginalized people in this country have been feeling for ages. For black people and brown people and trans people and gay people and Muslim people and Native Americans and poor people. And she goes on to say, what sucks is that it took us being personally affected to finally show up. And so she basically goes on and says, you can't show up to the movement late and decide to make your own organizations and lead them. Join them. Follow women of color. Right. Listen to marginalized women. Don't come in here like you've, you're reinventing the wheel. Don't come into the social justice movement as a white woman who's newly woke, ready to, you know, grab your, make your own flag and run with it. I get the intent. I get the desire, but we have to listen and we have to be historically, uh, 
know the historical context that we're walking into. Totally. And I think that is that is the key for me, listening. Everything that I've ever everything that I know about feminism and intersectional feminism and all of this, I've learned from listening to other folks who like I didn't have any of this information myself. And I think listening to the stories of folks at these intersections, whether it's, you know, folks who and and really being clear about you know, the intersections that you're thinking of and the ones that you might not be thinking of and let people tell you the ones that you that you might be missing. And that has been key for me. And I think I, I love that quote so much because it's just about, yeah, don't try to lead if you're not listening. Don't try to join the party late and, you know, don't Kendall Jenner your way into a protest <laughs> and hand everybody Pepsi. <laughs> But that's how protests work. Bridget. Yeah, that you just you just bring your Pepsi and yeah, with it's the, all fine with the fresh iced, you know, the <laughs> all the ice and the coolers at every protest. All right, shall we take a quick break? Let's take a quick break. I think when we come back, we want to talk through some quick tips and takeaways for how to proceed with an intersectional feminist framework in your life. We'll be right back. And we are back. Thank you for hanging in there with us with this kind of a tough conversation. Yeah, it's, a, it's wily. It's a burly one. Yeah. It's a big burly topic, but it's kind of indicative of, of the feminist movement. Yeah. Right? Um, so what we wanted to wrap up with y'all is some quick tips that we've learned along the way. And I'm sure you could add to this list, listeners. So feel free to add to this conversation on social media, please. We love hearing from you. But our sort of top tips for how to be more intersectional in your approach to feminism or in your life and work in general. Um, do you want to start it off with that first one? Yeah, um, I think the first one for me is just what I was starting to say before we went to break was listening. Um, everything I know about it, how to live an intersectional life, I learned from someone else. And so I think it's so important to listen to people at intersections, whether that intersection is rural versus city, whether that intersection is, you know, college educated versus not, whether that intersection is ability, just listening to the folks at those intersections and understanding their experiences and what they're about and listening in terms of what it takes to make them feel included. Right. And I think for those of you uh, like me who have trouble with interrupting, as we discussed a great length in another episode, keep in mind that all that evidence shows that women are more likely to be interrupted. We can disagree on whether we think it's by women or by men, but knowing that women's lives are already full of interruptions and not always given the space to be heard, I think it's especially important to work on that like I am. So I hope, I hope you'll join me in that because I think it's a, a huge area of growth for me. And it's not just about being polite. It's not just about being seen as not a jerk. It's really truly about making sure that other voices are heard. And that makes you a better leader, by the way. I also read an approach to this in academia. This actually came out of Intersectionality, a tool for gender and economic justice from the Women's Rights and Economic Change publication straight out of UNC. What is UNC.edu? University of North Carolina. Yes, that's the one. Uh, and in this phenomenal tool that was downloadable on the internet for free, which I highly recommend checking out, they also discuss it from a research perspective. Listening means your evidence has to be grassroots-based. This is not about top-down, let me as an organizer tell you what to do. It's like, 
we need to listen to our listeners. We need to listen to our fans. We need to listen to the populations for whom we want to pursue social justice. And you have to take an organizer's approach to that, which is like starts with a listening tour. Definitely. Yeah. No, I could talk about that all day. And that's being an organizer. That's been key. So many times you see folks who want to be activists or organizers um, building for, not with. They're not listening to the communities that they want to um, work with. Empower. And they're thinking of them as, you know, communities that they're going to be working for. And working with is so important. And it starts with listening. Awesome. The other things we want to say here kind of go hand in hand. Welcome difference. And know your privilege. And and I think that boils down to really acknowledging where your privilege comes from. For me, I present as white. So even though I have Latin heritage, doesn't always matter. That doesn't necessarily hold me back in the same way that other Latinas can be discriminated against. The fact that I don't have kids, as we discussed in the mommy tax, is a huge privilege from an employment perspective. I'm college educated. Like owning your privileges privileges doesn't mean apologizing for them. It means being cognizant of the invisible ways in which you have been given a leg up that not everybody has. Completely. This has been, that's, that's been huge for me. Um, you know, even as a, as a black woman, I have tons of privilege. I went to college. My parents went to college. Uh, my parents are still married. You know, um, I don't have children. I'm able-bodied. I'm cisgendered. Uh, being someone who's who's thin, uh, all of these things are a kind of privilege. And I think it's really about welcoming in folks who don't necessarily share those same privileges and making them feel included. And yeah, and sometimes that means being willing to be called in. Definitely. Right? To call in others and be willing to be called in because... It's hard to be aware of all of your privileges. So when someone else helps you become more aware of some privileges that you might not even think to add to the list, I'm sure we're forgetting some, for instance, try your best to not succumb to that very natural human instinct to jump into the defensiveness mode to get really, uh, you know, stressed out about proving yourself as, you know, I'm not a racist or I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, anti-LGBT folks and here's why and overly uh, correcting or attempting to by getting really defensive and offended. It's easy to feel offended, but we have to keep in mind that when we're being called in, it's an opportunity for learning and growth. Yeah. I say that knowing it's not as easy as that sounds. It's not easy. <laughs> I mean, we've, I, we, I've been on all sides of it. It's so not easy. But again, you know, growing is hard. And I also just like to tell people or remind folks that it doesn't have to be some big trip where if you say the wrong thing, Everyone is calling you a racist and you're a Nazi and you're so awful and terrible and you should go away and we're going to throw you away. We don't need you. It doesn't have to be. It can feel like that. Yes. I mean, honestly, sometimes that's what the Internet can be like. Yes. Oh, this is why I this could be a whole other episode of why I probably do an episode on safe spaces. Yeah. Um, But it doesn't have to be that way. Someone calling you in can just be, it doesn't, it doesn't, we don't have to go into defensive mode and going into defensive mode is not productive. Taking a breath, taking a beat and hearing what they're saying, internalizing it, working through that natural defensiveness and sort of, you know, sitting with that and having that be okay. Right. And then going from there. Some of my therapist friends have said that mirroring can be a really helpful exercise for those of us who struggle with empathizing with our critics, <laughs> like myself sometimes. Um, and, and so what that, I think it's called mirroring, if I'm getting this right. It, it, my friend, who's a therapist here, has told me it it's part of the Imago 
therapy practice, which is perspective taking and then echoing back what your partner is saying. So say you're in therapy with your mother or you're in therapy with your partner and you have a fundamental disagreement about their perspective, your job when you're mirroring someone is to echo back to them what they are saying and make sense of it. You don't need to agree with them, but to make sense of it and say something like, okay, so you're you're saying to me that I am a racist and I can understand where you are coming from because this is your experience and what I said here made you feel like that, you know, my intent was one that is racist. I mean, that's a really hard thing to do, but to actually echo back and articulate to that person what it is that they're trying to say can be a, a good independent exercise. So you don't need to actually go ahead and say that to folks who are giving you grief, but just acknowledging, I understand where you're coming from, um, can help us, I think, work on the very vulnerable and courageous act that is empathizing with someone who's totally disagreeing with you or trying or basically tearing you down. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad that you brought up empathy because I think that's what it's really all about is mm-hmm. being willing to empathize with our critics, with folks who have diff- who have very different lived experiences than we do, and even if we don't agree with them, just being willing to hear them and understand and process what they're saying and empathize with them. Yeah, you know what's a good example of that? Remember on the MGTOW episode? Oh yes, I, I do. almost feel like we overly empath- empathize oh, with them. I, I was, was like, we ended that by saying like. We really care about these people. And yeah, that's fine, because you were talking about your friend. Yeah. But I almost left that thinking, like, we can all disagree, too. You know, there's a part of me that wants to say, yeah. argue, disagree. I'm I not, just, yeah, I'm, you not, know? I'm not saying agree. I'm saying right, understand right. where they're coming from. That's true. Yeah. And, and I think, think that's, yeah, that's something that has been helpful in my life. And particularly, like, being from the South, when... People, I mean, I, I got so annoyed with all these think pieces that after the election that were like, think about the racists, um, all of those kinds of things. But under, I understand things like fear, things like shame, things like not understanding, feeling like you live in a world that you no longer recognize or understand. I can understand how those feelings can bring out some qualities in people that I might not agree with. So, sure. I, can, so I don't agree with the outcomes, but I can understand how they get to them. Right. Okay. I think that's a really important differentiation. And I think, I think the idea of an intersectional framework for feminism is one in which, you know, we're not just talking about being PC here. We're not just talking about being politically correct, although that's not a bad place to start. I think whether or not we bring an intersectional approach has very real and, and costly outcomes for the people in our country, for our fellow Americans who live every single day at those intersections, or even non-Americans, right? For those who we share this world with. And one example that Crenshaw really highlights a lot in her TEDx talk, which you have to see, it's called The Urgency of Intersectional Feminism. She points out an early legal case that really came to her attention because she comes at this from a legal scholar's perspective, which is the case of DeGraffenried versus General Motors, in which five black women sued GM on the grounds of race and gender discrimination. Quote, the particular challenge in the law was one that was grounded in the fact that anti-discrimination law looks at race and gender separately, as though black women or women of color don't exist. An example of a total lack of an intersectional framework. 
And she goes on to say, the consequence of that is when African-American women or any other women of color experience either compound or overlapping discrimination, the law initially just was not there to come to their defense. Wow. And GM got off with, without consequence. So I, I, I'm glad to hear that uh, initially it was not there because things have changed. But that just goes to show you how important an intersectional framework can be in making sure that issues as serious as police brutality, for instance, are not solely focused on uh, black men whose names are much more have much more um, name recognition and in, in, in much more ink in the mainstream media than, as Crenshaw points out, black women who are brutalized by police every day, it feels like in this country um, totally. and don't get the same attention. Yeah, I think I think. You see that in so many different ways. I remember when I was working at a news outlet, there was a young black woman in Philadelphia who had been um, who had been kidnapped, and you know, obviously that has its own kind of like um, things where we think about white women as being these kidnapping victims, and black women sort of don't get any kind of recognition. And I was wanted to put her name in the in the social media copy because I thought this woman could still be found and all of that. And my boss said, oh, well, she's no Natalie Holloway, <gasps> thinking, you know, she's not, you know, we don't need the name recognition. A, she doesn't have the name <gasps> recognition of a white girl who's gone missing. There's no need to, like, say her name. Or Philando Castile or a black exactly, exactly. man. Um, right. And, yeah, that that moment taught me the urgency of intersectionality, the urgency yeah. that we understand. And, and really, it can be it can be people's lives. It can be life or death. I think that's a great point. And that's where the hashtag campaign Say Your Name name. comes from, too. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I learned so much from this conversation. And we went in really already, you know, feeling like we've known a lot. Because this applies so much to all the work that we do here. I hope that you learned with us, listeners. And uh, I hope that you'll courageously continue this conversation with us online. We really try to stay true to our our philosophy that we can learn and grow together at Stuff Mom Never Told You, and we rely on your calling us in. We hope that you'll call us in with some empathy. <laughs> I get so, like, I, this has been such a growth experience for me to not be defensive and not get triggered, and I can really, I want to appreciate those of you who write in and do so with um, with the intention to truly help and not, you know, and not make us feel bad. I, I would appreciate that. Yeah, have a little empathy for people who don't know about sports, y'all. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, my God. We will never <laughs> talk about hockey again. Let me just make that clear. I'm loving that you just went there. Um, okay, so anything else, B? I think I think that's it. Give us a holler on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Make sure you tag us on those hot Instas at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And uh, you can always shoot us an email at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Thank you.